On this edition of Alberta Dugout Stories, the podcast, we sit down with a Canadian baseball writing legend. Bob Elliott joins us for a trip down memory lane and more. Welcome to Alberta Dugout Stories, the podcast. I'm Joe McFarland. It means a lot as a journalist to have the faith and the trust of your audience. It takes a special kind of journalist to also have the unfettered respect of the people you're interviewing as well. It's those relationships that allow you to get inside scoops and break stories. That track record paves the way for your legacy. In the Canadian baseball world, legend is a word used to describe Bob Elliott. His ability to build relationships was unmatched in his decades of covering the Montreal Expos and the Toronto Blue Jays. And even in his so-called retirement, he still does his best to bring the sport to his country with the Canadian Baseball Network. A few weeks ago, Elliot came to Alberta to speak at the Oktoks Dogs annual banquet. And as many know, Elliot fell ill early in his address and was rushed to hospital. The great news is he's off the IR and back home. Just before he hit the stage that cold night in Okotoks, Elliot was gracious enough to sit down with us to talk about how he got into baseball, some of his favorite memories, and what he hopes Canadian kids keep in mind as they go through the system. Here is that conversation. Let's go to the very beginning. And how is it that a Kingston boy from, you know, a hockey-laden community ends up getting into baseball? Well, I think basically, sorry about the voice, I've got a bit of a call, but it basically it would be passed down from my father. My father was a very good football player. He coached Queen's University. He's in the Queen's Football Hall of Fame, and he played basketball. And he was very good at baseball, and uh, he used to go down to, to Hall on the weekends and get paid and play under an assumed name. And uh, uh, but but baseball was his uh, was his love and. He uh, during the during the winter he didn't like hockey so during the winter it was uh, um, our tour would we'd go from Harvey Milne his old center fielder's bike shop to Bert Vince his old right fielder's uh, smoke shop to Art Gloin Shell Station and they say hey remember the night and uh, remember the night in Belleville this happened and uh, and the one the first one that I ever remember being able to retell was. They had a shortstop named Mickey Compo, and the fans were yelling at him. And it was drunk, and it was yelling at him. And if he got rattled, he would make errors. So the on-deck hitter said, shut up. And so the guy pushed, put his face right up against the screen. He says, who's going to make me? And, and the, I guess they handed balls through the, through the back of the backstop. So it was normal screen, and then they had this little part, chicken wire, and that's where the guy put his face. The guy popped him. So the guy had little little cross here, blood, little cross here, blood, little here, here. So that I thought that was just, and I knew I knew both guys because the, the one guy he wound up after uh, my father passed, and uh, we moved to Ottawa. He he kind of looked after, kind of looked after, uh, you know, us in a new city and. Uh, the kids grew up calling him grandpa, and my cousin played for the guy, the hothead, you know. So it, they were real people, you know, that I could identify with, you know. How is it that you go from that to 
journalism? What got you thinking that's the, the way of the future for you? Uh, I was just really, really lucky. I was uh, in Kingston. They had like a six-team senior league. And uh, the this fellow that had coached the juniors with my father, Cliffy Earl, he stopped by the house and he said, Are you going down to the season opener tonight? And uh, he said, well, I got something to do. I'll be, why don't you take my son and I'll be half an hour behind you. So we get down there, there's no lights, so it's supposed to start at 6.15. And we can see that we're sitting up on the berm in left field. And we can see the guy, the president, going through the stands. About 400 people are down the third baseline, then behind the first baseline, then behind home plate. Now he comes up the third baseline. So this guy, he was a very devout Christian, but he could uh, he could make you feel about that small. So he starts screaming at him, for John's sakes, what time does a 6:15 game start, Kenny? Let's go, let's go. He said, well, he says the scorekeeper passed over the winner. He said, we don't have a scorekeeper. We're not starting the game without a scorekeeper. And Cliffy says, give the book to the kid. So I was the kid. So I, he said, you can't sit here. I said, what do you, why not? He says, you have to be behind the backstop so both teams can come over and give you their changes. So I said, all right. So about the fourth inning, he comes over and he says, uh, you have to phone both radio stations. You have to phone the TV station. You have to go down to the newspaper and write up a box score. So I'd, I figured I could make the phone calls, but I needed a little work with a box score. So anyways, I did all that. The next day, the guy heard the scores on all the, and the, saw what, the story in the paper, and he phoned me, and, and I was a first-year midget, and he was gonna, he offered me $100 for the season. Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, Sunday rainouts, and I did the stats, and I thought I was the richest man in the world. So that then and and so anyways to continue. There was two guys they didn't like baseball and uh, it was a four-man staff at the newspaper, and the one guy wrote a headline. He said, "Cincinnati now half game back in the AL," and uh, the other guy had a headline: "Dodgers win on pass ball," and he spelled it P-A-S-T instead of P-A-S-S-E-D. So I was a young smart-ass teenager I'm not now but I corrected them both so the guy the guy threw the thing at like my notes he says you'd write the story yourself so I wrote it and the only two things they changed were I think I said Wednesday night instead of last night or vice versa and I forgot the name put in the name of the park where the game was played and it was perfect not that these guys were experts so from then on I was doing it and then um uh, I think it was the next year, uh, it was 1965, January, I did a bitty basketball tournament. And I'd done a few assignments, but that was the first time I'd ever received a byline. And uh, so it was, so I wrote for a newspaper for 50 years and uh, three months, yeah. When you look back on it, a lot of stories told, any one in particular or any one event stand out in your mind as being whether it's your favorite or one that just stood out above the rest uh well my favorite baseball story i'm going to tell it tonight is uh is uh in 1999 i was uh i was the head of the baseball writers association which may sound like a big deal but 
uh, it just, like, it rotates, you know, like, there's 26 or 27 chapters, you know, like, L.A. and Anaheim is one chapter, so, whatever. <clears throat> so, it's our turn, so, I have to speak at Cooperstown. So, I'm backstage, and, uh, Timmy Kirchison, he's, I don't know, he's with ESPN at the time, he says, Bobby, you look white, and, uh, I said, Timmy, did you see how many people were out there? So, there was the umpire, Nestor Shylock. There was uh, Orlando Cepeda being inducted, Robin Yount, George Brett, and Nolan Ryan. So I go inside. I go uh, backstage, you know, like a, a small room. All the Hall of Famers are there. And here comes Beeston, the, the president of the Blue Jays. He says, you better not screw this up. You better not screw this up. This is on ESPN. This is on TSN. If you screw this up, he says, Godfrey, that was the publisher of the paper. He won't let, he won't let you back into the, into the country. You better not screw this up. So I'm thinking, oh, my God, I don't need this. This is not, this is not any help. So I'm walking along, and I hear this guy say, hey, you, come here. It's Willie Mays. So I, I say, me? He says, yeah, come here. He says, tell me a baseball story. So I go, all right, I got one for you. Took me a little bit longer than that, but I said, okay, I got one for you. I said, the last day I was in spring training, Joe DiMaggio passed. He said, yep. So I said, now it's April, and Toronto is in New York, and they have another ceremony. But they'd already retired somebody, already had a statue, but they had another ceremony. So the next day, every paper head asked the question, who is now the greatest living ball player since DiMaggio passed? So he said, well, what was the answer? I said, it doesn't matter. That's not the point. So I said, about six weeks later, I'm in Montreal. And Felipe Alou is managing. And I said, Felipe, I said, you played six years in right field with uh, the Giants, with Willie Mays in center. And you played seven years uh, in, in, uh, with uh, the Braves right beside Hank Aaron. I said, who's the better player? And uh, he says, uh, he thought, thought for a long time, and he says, it's Willie Mays, Willie Mays without a doubt. And you know, like how older people, I'm, I'm probably getting there, they kind of go with a, they're a little hunched over. Like he would like ramrod straight when I gave him the answer, right? And he said, thank you very much, you've made my day. He said, I respect Felipe a lot and everything. And I said, can I ask you one question? He said, sure. I said, why'd you call me over, sir? I said, we've never met before. And he says, well, when you leave, you look to your right and you look to your left. So I looked to my left, and there was Governor Pataki of New York. And to my right was Governor Bush who, who of, Quebec, of, uh, not Quebec, of Texas. So he, I was, a, I was a, uh, a much better choice than a politician to Willie Mays. So now um, everybody has spoken except Brett. Brett gave the best speech of all. So I go backstage to go to the bathroom. And here's, uh, Nolan Ryan has spoken. Here's Bush getting in the van. And I knew him from the Rangers. So Bush, here, here was Bush. Bush would go, he said, watch this. And there'd be any point to a guard down there at Arlington, up with his back to us, right? He'd go, and the, the guard who had the thing in would, like, jump. So he, you know, like, he, he didn't have his eye on his, uh, the son of the president at the time. So... Anyways, uh, he, was, he was a good guy. He was always joking and everything. So I had spoken, and uh, 
So I start towards the van. He gets out of the van. He says, good job. And so I go like this, and I move my hand up, up like here. I was going to whisper something, like, because it was talk, he was going to run for president. I don't know, like, good luck against the Democrat. I don't remember what I was going to say. But as soon as I go like this, I get, boom, right here, right in the solar plexus by, uh, by one of those uh, uh, Texas Rangers wearing the earplugs, not, not one of the Texas Rangers wearing the uniforms. But my speech, my speech was, uh, I don't know, went five minutes or whatever. So I'm done, all right? All I got to do is read the plaque. And I was presenting the Spink Award to a man named Bob Stevens from San Francisco. So I said, all I got to do is read this. So like first graph, second graph, third graph. I'm in my last graph. I'm home free. I got a breakaway, right? So the last graph is Bob Stevens was a fair and accurate reporter. So I go, Bob Stevens was a fair and accutat. Sorry. Bob Stevens was a fair and accolade. And then I fouled it up a third time. I couldn't say the word accurate. So finally, so I just looked up and I said, I just know how to, I just have to spell it. I don't have to say it. So anyways, after the pictures, I'm walking back to my seat beside uh, Killebrew and Bob Feller. And Brooks Robinson calls me over and I'm thinking, oh no, he's going to say, no wonder you couldn't say accurate because you're never accurate or something. And he says, good job, son, I think. So Brooks Robinson is one of my favorites. So that that was that's probably my best. I don't know how many Hall of Fame name droppers I put in there, but that uh, Willie Mays, uh, he was uh, he was one of the best that I ever saw. Yeah. When you look back on on your career, and one of the things that I've taken away from it is your ability to create relationships with players and those involved in the game. And I wonder who stands out most. Who's the one guy who you really thought? highest of when it came to the relationship you were able to build with them or the conversations you were able to have with them um that kind of thing um well there's a there's a bunch like i got i got along with hanky very well and hank and pat hank and borders a lot of guys it was different back in those days and like back when we rode the when we flew the charters with the expos woody fryman was a uh Buck Rogers, uh, Jerry White, uh, a lot of guys like that. But I mean, I would say uh, recently it would have been uh, Batista. I think because just because I wrote so often, so many things about him. We ran a, you know, there was, uh, uh, and he was uh, in Roy Holiday. But uh, I, I would say, but there's, uh, it's tough to name. It's tough to name. I remember one time we had a. We used to play this game when we were in rain delays or in airport lineups. Like, who's the the player that you had the worst relationship with ever, and who's the player you had the best relationship ever? Who is it? That was Timmy Kirchner's game. So uh, the answer for me was the same player. It was George Bell. His uh, for about two and a half months, I think, during his MVP year, he wouldn't speak to me. So. I go to the All-Star game in Oakland, and I come around the corner. I'm going to uh, the American League room to talk to Larusa, because Larusa, Larusa's a coach. Uh, Larusa was uh, managed in San Pedro de Marcos, and there was a little kid that lived in right field. It used to come over and say, "Mr. Larusa, hit me balls, hit me balls," and he uh, he had he had his leg was kind of 
sideways or whatever. He had to have surgeries. He said, someday I'm going to I'm going to get my leg fixed, and I'm going to come to America, and I'm going to play for you. Anyways, it was Tony Fernandez. So I see George, and he goes to the visiting room, which for an all-star game is a national league room. So now we're coming back. The, the Larissa's office is closed. So we come around the corner, and boom, we bump into each other. He says, what are you doing here, man? I said, I come out here to cover you. Oh, really? Thanks, man. So then we've been pals ever since, and then we wrote a book, uh, uh, split the hundred thousand dollars, which was uh, the largest advance for a baseball book uh, that I know. Um, so, uh, and and he's a good friend. He uh, very very kind to my son uh, in a couple instances. Well, the instance was uh, my son was whatever grade he was in grade four or five, and he he did a speech, and he made the finals with uh, another boy. And a, and a girl. So the boy said Kelly Gruber is the greatest player in the history of the Toronto Blue Jays franchise. So my son argued that it was Bell. So he got to the conclusion and he went and like he raised his voice and he said to the other boy, and that's why. So he didn't win because he, you know, he lost his composure, according to the teacher. So I told George that story. So he was, he was with the White Sox then, so he says, bring him down. And uh, so I brought him down, and, uh, and uh, he uh, brought him down near the dugout, and he shook hands, and I made a big fuss. So, yeah, George, George in his first game back with the White Sox, this is a, this is a special one. Uh, first game back with the White Sox, he's uh, into Toronto. He, he goes 0 for 5. I think he struck out, he, he either struck out twice, and grounded a double play three times or vice versa and with the bases loaded. So they won't, um, uh, he won't talk. So everybody's just killing him, right? So um, he says, hey, man, uh, give me a ride back to uh, the Western. I said, yeah, sure, no problem. So uh, I had to wait for, we get outside the clubhouse. I had to wait 45 minutes. He's talking to two kids in wheelchairs. So I go in the next day. I said, hey, Mike. I was off that night. I said, Mike, I said, I want to write that. He said, nah. He says, uh, you wrote the book, and it'd be like, you know. I said, the book is on sale for 99 cents. I said, that was three years ago. I said, I said that's another side of the guy that people don't see. He said, nah. So, whatever. He was, they've all got their bad moments. and they, uh, Like Votto, Votto is a, is a good guy. And, like, I know, you know, what he said last year was... Uh, like, I don't give a rat's ass, but, like, I, uh, I don't know how much you travel in the States, but it can get you, it can get to you. You know, like, I'm, in, I'm taking a cab to the ballpark in Milwaukee, and the guy says, uh, where are you from? I said, Toronto. He said, oh, really? He says, how, how far would I have to go if I flew to Toronto to shoot a bear? I said, oh, I don't know, probably about a nine-hour drive north. So he turns around, he says, well, why the hell would I go to Toronto? You know, like, you know, and then I went to an, a, a wedding in Atlanta last year, and the guy looks at my driver's license, and he says, oh, Mississauga. He said, that's, uh, he said, I got a cousin in Calgary. You, do you know him? No, I don't know him. You know, like, they think we're all, like, so Paxton was, I don't know, six or seven years younger than Votto. The guy, the guy you know, it, it was not a, you know, they think that 
everybody. It, it's a it's a great close knit community, but uh, the base the Canadian baseball community. But every like like Adam Lawrence told me about guys uh, say uh, asking him, hey, what was it like pitching with Real Cormier, who was like ten years older? You know, the the American they don't the average the average grade ten student here knows more about America, the United States, than the average. You know, the, the, uh, American does about Canada. Speaking of the the local game, you are here in Okotoks, and I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about just your thoughts. Given that you are running uh, Canadian Baseball Network as well, is give me a, a few of your anecdotes as far as what you see out of the Canadian game. Some of the young talent coming through this this country, and what are we what are we seeing trends wise? Are we seeing a, a resurgence of the game here, or or give us some thoughts on that uh, aspect of the game here? Well, the number the number of uh, the number of uh, total number of Canadians in the big leagues this year was down compared to like I don't know maybe about six years ago when it was twenty four or something the highest since eighteen eighty. But the thing is, you got guys coming. You know, like Gareth Morgan got two million dollars. Uh, both Naylor brothers got. Uh, over two million dollars. Uh, Paul Quantrill's son Cal was at Stanford. He got three million. And uh, there's kids coming. You know, like the the one futures game. Uh, there was four guys. It was uh, Naylor Quantrill, uh, the BC guy um, Rowan Wick, and I forget who the fourth guy. But there's it's there's kids. I would say the biggest change it's it used to be when I started tracking these guys. The draft would go pitcher, 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 position player, pitcher, pitcher. Now it's position player, position player, pitcher. You know, like the I, I and nobody has the answer for it. I mean, the the answer is uh, most scouts say it's uh, the indoor facilities, but you know you can't you can't repeat uh, because indoors indoors you can do you can do the pitching and you can do the hitting but like where our weakest as a as a nation our weakest position is shortstop you know so that but uh, uh Naylor's a first baseman the older Naylor's are first baseman slash outfielder and Morgan's an outfielder and uh, and the younger Naylor is either a catcher or a third baseman you know and Soratka's a there's there's a there's a Soratka he had a I remember the day he pitched against the Blue Jays and uh, he had two out, and I think he only allowed the one run. And uh, uh, and it was E6, E5, double, walk, E6, double, E6. It was just just awful, right? Just like one of your worst, the worst innings you could remember. So in Dunedin, the press box is here. The next booth is the general manager's box next booth is Wilner's box the fan so I went to the washroom and uh, Wilner had I could you could it's piped in so you could hear Soratka giving and telling him about his inning and uh, he spoke very well as he always does so then uh, I don't know a couple innings later I went out to make a phone call or something and there was Alex going to take the elevator down so he he ignores the elevator. He says, "Come on, come on in the room." He says, "He says, well, you hear this." So uh, Dana Brown is one of was one of their top scouts. He just went to the Braves, but he told Sirotka, He says, "Look, 
He says, we promise you, if we, if we draft you and we sign you, we'll draft a shortstop too. Because the guy had a bad game, you know. It's always a great thing to have is seeing the, the progression of these players as they make their way through. When you speak to a crowd such as tonight, you're going to have a bunch of high schoolers here. What's your message to them as they make their way through the, the system and make their way up to you know a college level, that kind of thing? Uh, the, one, the one message uh, I have is that uh, I learned it along from personal experience. In 2007, I was helping coach a team, and we had this little bitty uh, center fielder. He wasn't much of a hitter. He'd either hit ninth or he'd hit tenth. And then we had this stud who was always bad at third, and he caught. You know, if he caught, and he was the number one pitcher and everything. We won the Canadian championship in uh, Quebec Pee Wee's. But the little center fielder threw it a runner, or we'd uh, had to play an extra game or something. Like he clinched our on the run differential, I forget. So it was a big, big, big play. So he he was fully worthy of being in the lineup defensively. So two years later, uh, we win it again. The other guy's a stud. I'm not going to tell you his name. The center fielder, same thing, hit ninth. You know, was often asked just to bunt. Couldn't pull the ball, left-handed hitter. So now it's two years later, and I'm up in St. Mary's, and I was speaking, I think, on, I forget what I was speaking, but I came around the corner, and there's the stud. And he was like, he was the first 15-year-old on Team Ontario's 18-year-old team, which was a big deal. And now this is the next year he's with the Ontario Blue Jays. I said, what are you doing here? You're supposed to be... They were going. They go south for the month of July. Why are you here? I quit. I said you quit. Oh, well, okay. So, you know, you know, I'm not gonna dress him down. I mean, it's, he's doing what he wants. That's whatever. So the next year after that, where uh, I was coaching, and we had uh, the little center fielder's uh, younger brother as a column. So I said, David, how's your brother? How's he doing? Pretty good, yeah. He went to school in uh, Quebec, a prep school. So uh, I said, uh, is he coming tonight? He says, I don't know. He might come. He's going to work out. So the game ends, and I said, where's where's your father? Like, you can't leave a kid there alone, right? And he says, oh, he's behind the backstop. I said, well, I can't see him. He says, uh, well, coach, he's, he's standing right there. right at the." I said, well, who's that big tall guy beside him? He says, that's my brother. It was Mark Jankowski. That was uh, that was our guy. So I mean, you know, like I mean, look around. Like you're a peewee here, and you're the smallest guy, or the third smallest guy, and you want to be, you want to throw the ball hard, and you want, like, you no. Know, if you if you'd have paid me a million dollars, in, or if you'd have asked me to predict for ten dollars or whatever, I, I'm not a big better. Who was the better? Going to be the better player? I'd have picked the stud, you know, the bigger kid. But he never never grew after Bantam. Whereas he, I think he grew 11 years, and um, is, uh, and I'm I'm not a hockey guy, but uh, I phoned somebody for his stats today. He's, I think he's got eight goals. I don't. Even, what line is he on? Third line. Third line, yeah. But he did uh, that. That's it. The other guy, the head guy, and I, and they, we other, we also had on that team uh, Josh Anderson, who uh, was a backup kind of. 
but he stole the signs of the Quebec guys in the final against uh, Edvon in the Bantams, and um, and we beat them uh, four to two. But he's got, I think he's got about 18 goals or something for Columbus, and uh, so we joke like we really coached them up. They're in the NHL, you know. But we had we had uh, Nathan D'Souza. He signed with the Blue Jays. And, uh, Dayton Daw signed with the Yankees, and uh, I don't know. They spent two or three years in the minor leagues, yeah. and a bunch of guys, a bunch of boys went to school, Boston College, and other places. Bob, music is basically saying, "Hey, it's time for us to go." I do appreciate the time. Thank you so much for uh, for joining us on the podcast. An absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Again, glad to hear Bob is doing well again. If you want to follow him on Twitter, do so at Elliot Baseball. That'll do it for this week's edition of Alberta Dugout Stories, the podcast. Thanks so much for listening.